You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning. My name is Erica Grunst, and I have been attending Hope for 15 years and currently serve in the college ministries. Please stand for today's reading. Our passage today is Judges 6, 11 through 16. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, that's very good. Yes. I almost said good morning class, and that would have maybe have perked some of you up perhaps as well. So I'm excited. I, I really am. And that we are to the judge of Gideon. And Gideon is perhaps one of the more famous, I would say, of all the judges other than perhaps Samuel, Samson that we find in the book of Judges together. And so I'm excited also that we're going to be able to teach an exhaustive kind of amount of time with, with Gideon as he is this powerful character that God speaks to. And I think so very relevant to all of us in the room this morning as well. And so today the teaching is somewhat um, descriptive. It's very much a narrative. Next week will be a little more prescriptive as we talk about some of the theological things behind this story of Gideon as well. But today Gideon chapter 1, or part 1, and that is, And the Lord said to Gideon, and I took this strictly from the verses this morning, but I will be with you. Because I think it's perhaps one of the most powerful things that God says to Gideon and perhaps in the entire book of Judges. But I will be with you, he says. So let me give you some context to kind of bring you up to speed. If you were not able to be here the last couple of weeks with us. Or maybe this is your first time here with the book of Judges. And, and I want to say thank you if, if this is your first time. And we are super glad that you're here. So in chapters 4 and 5... Well, we find that Deborah is called by God to be the judge of Israel. She is a prophetess as well. And and then there is this other character along with her, Barak. And Barak is the reluctant commander of the armies of Israel. And so Deborah is the judge. The leader of Israel calls Barak to take an army out to face the Canaanites. And so what we realize is that during this occupation of the Canaanites with Israel, Israel has been disarmed. There is no spears. There's no swords. And yet the Canaan army has 900 chariots of iron. And so what God does with his miraculous sovereign hand is he sends this rainstorm in the middle of the desert, causes 
the river Kashan to rise and it floods out the plains and it causes these 900 chariots of iron to become mired in the mud. So Israel wins the war, yet the leader of Canaan, the Canaanite army, Sisera, he escapes. He finds himself at the tent of this person by the name of Jael, who is not an Israelite. And she brings him in and she woos him in with food. And then she drives a stake a tent stake into his head and kills him. I love the Old Testament, don't you? Isn't it great? It really is. It's so real. It is so, I think, so powerful for us and sometimes is unbelievable as well. And so after this, after this great battle victory, then Israel has 40 years of peace, which means that our 40 years of rest is actually what the term is used, which means they have peace and security in the Lord for 40 years. Then it brings us to chapter six, verse one, where we begin our study this morning. And this is what it says in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We have seen that so many times now that I want to talk about it in a moment. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So when I see this, what I realize is that, well, this statement that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord is repeated so many times for, I think, for a reason, for us to you and I to be very curious about what the sin of Israel is. We could go through the entire book and find this many more times, but not to pinpoint the sin of Israel. I think we'd be missing something very uh, powerful for us this morning. But we see this pattern. We find them being uh, rescued from their enemies and their oppressors. And then after a certain amount of time, they find themselves doing what evil in the sight of God. So what are they doing? That's the question. What do they do? Well, it's that they turn to something else in their life. Their ultimate trust is focused on something other than God. It is the simple definition of idolatry is what it is. And I think we have come to this understanding that idolatry does not necessarily mean or just relegated to that of you having a a graven statue or image in your home that you build an altar to and you worship. But it's anything that you will place your ultimate trust in in this life other than God. And so that makes it very relevant for you and I. And so we see Israel falling into this sin of idolatry all the time. And you say, Mark, even after what God has done for them in chapters 4 and 5 and delivering from the Canaanites, sending this great rainstorm as a sovereign work of his hand. Yes, even after that, so I want, to, I want to understand how this happens in their life because I don't want this pattern of sin to be repeated in my life as well. Well, it is a great discussion for you and I as we begin today because what we realize is that with Israel and with our life as well, it's the difference between repentance and regret is what it is. It's the difference between repentance and regret. And if you get this down and understand this, then I think it will give you a whole new understanding of the book of Judges and Israel's cycle of sin. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 10. And it says to you and I, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, not regret. I underline those two words, not regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And I think I could add to that because of understanding the context of the scripture, it, that worldly grief does produce death and it does lead to regret as well. 
So through our study so far, we've seen Israel having all of these leaders, people like Othniel and, and Ehud and Deborah and Shamgar and all these other people. But we see that Israel's sorrow for their sin is only skin deep. It is. It's not heartfelt. They're regretful for their sin, but they're not repentant. You say, Mark, you got to explain that. I, I will in just a moment because godly grief produces repentance but that of worldly grief produces regret and death. But they both are very different, but they share one commonality. And that is that they both produce intense sorrow. That's why I think sometimes when we see Israel and we see the sorrow of them crying out to God, we're saying, oh, they're repentant with God, you know, and they are. And the reality is that is not it at all. No, it, it is very much a, a regret on their part of, of the consequences for the sin that they have done. And that is the sin of idolatry before God. But both of them share this intense sorrow. I think that's why it's important that you and I talk about it for a moment. Because I think you can be misled sometimes in the areas of that of repentance and the areas of regret with your life and where you are in that in your sin. Because worldly grief brings no transformation. And that of godly grief results in real transformation. Worldly grief is the sorrow over the consequences of our sin. You say, but Mark, how do I know that I'm having worldly grief? Or how do I know that I'm having godly grief? Well, I want to tell you, there's a test for that. And it's this. If you remove the consequences in your life, does the sorrow still remain? Because if this is worldly grief in your life, if you remove the consequences, then the sorrow goes away as well. But if this is godly repentance in your life, and even if the, the, the circumstances change or they're removed within your life and the consequences, then the sorrow remains. Why? Because this is about your vertical relationship with God. This is about that. Listen, regret is about a horizontal relationship. It's about how bad you feel and what you don't have anymore. And, and now you're under occupation or being oppressed by this, this outside group. So that's regret. But you take those away, you take those away, and all of a sudden the sorrow goes away as well. That's the that's the pattern. That, that is this pattern that we find Israel repeating over and over throughout the book of Judges. But if this is godly repentance, even when the consequences stop in your life, you still have sorrow for your sin. You see, Israel is, re, is regretting. They're, they're, they, they're in regret for losing 40 years of peace and not their sin of idol worship. Oh, and so what does God want to do? God wants to take them on this journey from that of regret to repentance. What does God want to do in my life and your life? The same thing, to take us on this journey from regret to, to repentance within our lives. You said, but Mark, what does this have to do with me this morning? It has a great deal to do with you in this pattern that we find Israel in because it helps us to differentiate between those normal lapses of our faith while we're on this dirt road of sanctification and that of getting stuck in a sinful pattern. Because you're going to have these moments in your life. These moments where you fail. And there are these normal moments of regression in your faith life. And you have that on this road of sanctification that you're walking today. But you have to know the difference between those normal lapses of, of your faith. And that of getting stuck in a sinful pattern. And you see Israel is stuck in a sinful pattern. There's no progress for their life spiritually. Spiritually. 
any longer. And so what God does, he gives us the book of Judges in chapter 6. Because it's difficult for you and I to see our own hearts. And so what he does, he speaks to Israel and he speaks to us. And he sends the Midianites. So have you ever thought, who's Midian? And who are the Midianites? Midian and the Midianites, right? It sounds like some kind of musical group, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, right? But it's not a musical group at all. So I, I was curious about who Midian was. So I began to research. Today, when you go home, read Genesis chapter 25, and it will tell you. Don't read it right now. It's because you got to listen for a moment, okay? But when you go home, read Genesis chapter 25. But let me tell you who Midian is. Midian is the son of Abraham and Keturah, his third wife, or many theologians call her a concubine of Abraham. So when I read this, what I realized that, wait a minute, that Midian and the Midianites, they're cousins of the Israelites is what they are. And I think that bears some some truth into this story this morning. Verse two, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. You see, fear causes them. Fear causes them as it causes us many times to do the things that we never thought we would ever do. It is. That's the way fear works within our lives. Israel has gone 40 years of rest, this great victory after Deborah and Barak. And now they're living in caves, hiding in caves for seven years because fear will make you do the things that you never thought you would ever do. So way back in mine and Reba's life, when we had one child, Chadwick, our first child, the church that we served as youth pastors provided us with this house. This house was provided for us to live in, and it came with no charge, extra roaches and mice, right? They did, right? They were just thrown in, I guess, as part of the benefit package, right? And so we would see them occasionally and fight them, you know, in the house or whatever. And so one morning early, we'd gotten up, we'd gotten Chadwick, our first child, our first son. He was in the bed with us and we're in our bed in our bedroom. And all of a sudden I see a mouse scurry around the edge of the room, right? So let me ask you a question before we go any further. How many of you have, you're afraid of mice? Raise your hand if you're afraid of them. Come on, be honest, right? So if I were to throw out a box full of mice right here on the front right now, what would you do? You would scream, wouldn't you? You would run. Absolutely. Yeah. I read. So why are people afraid of mice? Because of their unpredictability and their speed. You just don't know where they're going. I mean, you can be standing there one moment, right? And all of a sudden they run on your shoe, up your leg, into your pants. And now you have a mouse in your pants, right? (laughs) Nobody wants a mouse in their pants. No. So, so we're in the bed, we see a mouse, and he gets between us and the door. The three of us are in the bed, so we have a plan. Reba says, go kill it. And I looked at her and I said, no, you go kill it, right? That's the man thing to do, right? Because I'm afraid of it. I don't have anything in the bed to kill it with. I don't have a golf club to beat it to death with or whatever, you know, is, is what you do. So I said, let's wait until it's not between us and the door because it could be a killer mouse. You never know. And right. And, and then what we're going to do is we're going to make our way out the door and we're going to get away from this thing and I'll come back in and find it. So all of a sudden the mouse, re, you know, he kind of readjusts himself because he's sizing up which one of us when he wants to eat first. And so and 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 so so Reba and I jump out of the bed. We head out to the right. You remember this? We head through the hall into the living room, out the front door, and we're standing in the front yard, and we're looking at each other, and all of a sudden realize there's something that we forgot in the house. 
we forgot our first child. And he's probably being eaten alive by a killer mouse right now, right? Yes, yes. And I had to go back and I had to find a, a golf club and I had to beat it to death in the corner. You know, such a sad thing, isn't it? No, he deserved it. So anyway, all right. Fear causes you to do things that you thought you would never do. Isn't that correct? Yes. We're not bad parents. We wouldn't abandon our child, but we did that. This is Israel. I can imagine how they felt. There's some real powerful words, if I can get through all of them this morning, with you as well. But what I realize is that when you turn away from God, it's called you know apostasy. Apostasy. I can't even say it right now, but you know what I mean, right? It, 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 uh, it always comes at a cost when we walk away from God. It does. Because God loves us enough that he's, that he's not going to stand by idly in those moments of our lives. There, there's going to be some consequences. What is the consequences of the walking away from God in idolatry of Israel? And, and that is of them being relegated to living in a cave is what it is. So I wrote this in my, my journal this week. I said, because why, why? Because it is more painful for God to be distanced from you, talking about us in this room as well. It's more painful for God to be distant from you than it is for him to see you hungry and living in a cave. Have you ever thought about God like that? It's more painful for him to be distant from you than to see you hungry living in a cave. What a beautiful picture of the love of God. You say, Mark, you're weird. I know, but it is a beautiful, amazing picture of the love of God. It's in Israel's prosperity, these 40 years, you know, of peace and rest they had in their complacency. They find themselves right back where they were before this great battle with Sisera and the Canaanites. It is. So what's worse with God? God removing his hand and saying, oh, I can't stand to see Israel suffering. Is that what's worse? God removing his hand or God stepping into the mess of their lives and sending them a horde of Midianites because one is cruel and the other is grace and mercy. I'll let you decide which is which this morning. So for 40 years or after this, they've just forgotten about that of Deborah and Barak. They've forgotten about that of Jael and her killing Sisera with a tent peg. They no longer sing Deborah's song that is in chapter 5 of Judges. They've returned to trusting in themselves is what they've done. And now they're sorrowful, but they're not repentant. Because they're only sorrowful because of the consequences of having to live in caves and hide. But they're not repentant of their sin. And so God humbles them, doesn't he? He humbles them to get their attention and takes them out of their comfortable homes and he puts them in the rocks is what he does. Because there's no extent too far for the love of God for you. There's no extent too far for the love of God for you. It's inexhaustible. Think about that for a moment. It's inexhaustible. Verse three. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and they would 
encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkeys. Look, at this is what the Midianites did to them. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they, they came in. In other words, what it's saying is nothing is left. When the, Midianite, when, the Midianites, when the Midianites show up, there's nothing left after they're finished with Israel. They clean them out completely. Every year they show up like this swarm of locusts and they devour the harvest and all the livestock and everything. And, and I go back to knowing who Midian and the Midianites are. And they're distant cousins of the Israelites. So I thought about this in kind of my weird way of thinking. They're like the undesirable distant relatives that show up uninvited at your house, right? Now, if they're here with you this morning and you brought them to church, don't look at them right now. Just look at me, right? Yes. But those uninvited, distant relatives, they eat everything in your house. They mess up your house. They use all of your toilet paper. They leave their shoes all over the house. They never clean up anything. They never make a bed. And you pray every morning when you get up. Today is the day they're going to leave. And they decide they've extended your visit. So what do you do? You go find some place to hide to get away from them. That is the Midianites. They come back every year. So don't miss this warning that God is giving us today. This, he's cueing us in on some truth here. That what is different from the Midianites and the Canaanites and all the other ites that oppress Israel is the Midianites do not occupy Israel. They stay in their own land. They just show up every year at harvest time and they take everything that Israel has worked hard to amass. Do you know what we call that? We call that injustice, don't we? And when you are treated unjustly, what does it do? It's demoralizing is what it is. It, it, it absolutely just saps all the joy out of you. It, it, it takes any kind of self-esteem that you have about yourself and sort of tramples on it as well. And that's what this is doing to Israel. Not just that they're taking their goods, but they're also taking their emotions back with them as well. You see, Israel's sin made all their work profitless. And this is the point that I think you have to see this morning. That their sin makes all their hard work profitless because the Midianites show up and they take anything and everything that they want. Isn't that the way sin works in our life? When you think you can manage it, right? When you think you say, I've got this and this is okay, that this is not going to affect any other area of my life, I'm going to isolate this sin of my life and compartmentalize it. What we realize is that this story is told in a way that we see the Midianites coming into Israel and nothing is left untouched. No crop is left untouched. No part of the land is left untouched. It's all infected by the Midianites and they take whatever they want. That's just like sin for those moments of sin in your life when you think you can manage it. I want to tell you, you can. it will always manage you. Understand that. And it takes everything. It will always take more than you're wanting to give. And that is what sin does to our life. It damages Everything about us. So it's a powerful nugget. I think that, that Samuel, as he writes this, puts this in there 
in the story of Gideon for you and I this morning. So look at verse six. I'm gonna get to a point in a minute, so just hang on, okay? So just, I, I gotta kind of build this foundation for you. Verse six. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. That's exactly what that means. That it was demoralizing. Can you think about it? You go to work, you know, you, you amass something, you have, you have things in your house, and then somebody shows up tomorrow morning at your house, and they take whatever they, that, you, they want to take. There's nothing you can do to stop them. And they cart it all off and everything that you work for is gone. And then all of a sudden you have nothing. It's demoralizing and that's where they are. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. I, I underlined that. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice, is what he said. So here's the first of a couple of thoughts this morning. The first is this, what do we really need, a savior or a sermon? Interesting, isn't it? If I perhaps were to ask a show of hands of that, then perhaps most of you would say, oh, we, we need a savior, not a sermon. So what do we really need more, a savior or a sermon? But I look at this and I see that they're calling out to God. And it says then that the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. They pray for deliverance. God sends a preacher. What? Maybe God didn't hear them, right? I pray for deliverance. And then God sends a televangelist. I, I don't, that's not what I ask for, right? No, that, that's not it at all. No, this, this, is like, this is like you being stranded on the side of the road with your car, broken down. And so you call a tow service and you ask them to come tow your car to their garage and repair your car so you can get underway. And then the, the person on the other end of the line simply says from the tow service, we're not going to send a tow truck out for your car, but we are going to send someone out with a repair manual for you to fix the car yourself, right? That's exactly what this is like. But I think we have to ask the question, what was Israel's real problem? What was their real problem? Because I think the first answer that comes to our mind was the Midianites. Midian and the Midianites. That's exactly who their, what their, who their problem is. But when you look at this text, what we realize, the problem is themselves. That's this themselves. No, that's why they ask God for a savior. God sends a sermon. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Have you ever been there? Have you ever asked God for deliverance? God, get me out of this. And God says back to you, turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter six is what God says to you. No, God, I don't want a sermon. I'm getting one right now. I get enough of them. That's not what I need. And God says, yes, that's exactly what you need. Why? Because we forget, we forget sometimes that the ultimate, and here it is, the ultimate goal in this life is not deliverance. The ultimate goal is to be like Christ. Oh, I want to leave that up on the screen for a moment. I want you to really let that soak into your mind and your heart. That the ultimate goal in this life is not deliverance, but the ultimate goal is to be like Christ. Why? We said this a few weeks ago. I'll say it again because we most reveal him and we are most like him. The goal in this world is not to punch out as soon as we can. The goal in this world is not to follow along with the thought of 
escapism. And that is that, man, I'm just going to kind of sit here and try to keep my nose clean, you know, kind of through my life and not do anything really, really terrible. And, and then when, when Christ returns, then I'll go to heaven and I'm out of here. And, and, and that's, that's what this life is all about. No, it's to make him known while we're here is what this life is about. So I give you a question. I think the answer to this question will really help you how you see life. Are you living this life like an escapist? So it frustrates you sometimes when you ask God for deliverance and God sends you a sermon or tells you because the ultimate goal of life is not deliverance, but it's to be like him. So here's the question. If heaven were not a reality, would you still love and serve God? If heaven were not a reality, would you still love and serve God? It really matters how you answer that. It does. And how you live that out. Because if your answer is anything but yes to that question, that you would if heaven was not a reality. And I'm going to tell you, it is. Okay, so don't get all crazy on me this morning. But it is. But would you still? And if your answer is anything but yes, then I would tell you in a very loving way, you have some very serious fundamental spiritual problems that you really need to address this morning. You see, they pray for a deliverer and God sends them a preacher. Why? Because God wants to focus on their heart first. And that's what God desires to do in my life and your life as well. Focus on our hearts first is what I realize. In thinking about their suffering and Israel's suffering, I thought about how we suffer in this life. And I said, well, there's three ways. It's on your notes this morning. There's three ways we suffer. We suffer because the world is a broken place. Innocent people suffer all the time. There are people suffering in Israel. There are people suffering in Gaza today. There are people suffering in Ukraine. There are people suffering all over the world. We suffer because the world is broken. Secondly, we suffer because uh, we're going to experience that as a result of our faith. Jesus told us that we would be persecuted as he was persecuted. So we suffer sometimes because of our faith. But there's a third one, and that is that we suffer due to our disobedience. And I'm not saying that all of your suffering is due to your disobedience. So don't get all crazy on me and just lock that in as your final answer today and leave, right? That's not it. No. But sometimes it is. Can I give you a text for that? Thank you. I appreciate that. Psalm 119, verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commands. Look at verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Wow. That's a powerful verse. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So the question is this for you this morning. Is God trying to get your attention? God, get me out of this, Lord. You know, send me a deliverer. Well, God does eventually send Israel a deliverer deliverer in, in the form of Gideon. Very unlikely guy, but yet Gideon as well. But, but you say, God, get me out of this. And God says, no, turn in your Bible to such and such, right? 
You've prayed, you know, God, you know, take me out of this situation, Lord, answer this. And, and, and you wait for an answer. And then someone sends you a, a text or someone sends you a devotional on, on suffering and, and that how you grow in those moments of your life. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to read that. Is God trying to say to you what I need to do in your heart is more important than getting you out of the situation that you're in? And I realize that that is not fun theology, right? I realize that that is not the kind of theology that wins friends and sells books and all. I realize that that is tough to to really swallow this morning. But if you're going to look at the truth of the book of Judges, you got to look at the truth. We don't want to pass this over. And this is exactly what's happening in the life of Israel. So I wrote this in my journal this week, that God has not moved you into a cave to get back at you, but to draw you back to him. Have you ever thought about that? That God has not moved you into a cave to get you back at, to get back at you, but to draw you back to him. Perhaps at this moment, and I'm not saying that deliverance doesn't come in your life, Because when you look at Israel, we know it does. But have you ever thought that perhaps at this very moment, this is where God wants you because God is doing something in your life, something greater than you can even imagine, something far greater than the suffering that you're experiencing. Wow. Let's move on. You ready to move on? Yeah, I'm ready to move on. I'm tired of the suffering stuff, yeah? Let's move on. Verse 11. Yeah. Now the angel of the Lord came and said and set under the, the terabith at Ophrah. Now I stopped for a moment to say to you, because most of you thought I said Oprah. I know, but I didn't say Oprah. I said Ophrah. You know, it does sound a lot alike that as Barak sounds a lot like Barak. I realize that as well. But it is Ophrah, not Oprah. So, you know, don't look under your seat for a gift or anything like that. Right. It, it's it's not, that would be cool, though, wouldn't it? To do that every week. We'll move on. Okay, here we go. All right. Which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite? While his son, oh, here's Gideon, was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the, the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So I'll tell you what really struck me kind of crazy in this verse that Gideon is beating out wheat in a wine press. Now, Just think about that for a moment and we'll move on. It's the struggle of thrashing wheat in a wine press. Because, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I understand that. But and my dad used to say that. And and so but you you don't you don't make wine with wheat. Am I I right about that or am I wrong? I mean, don't, don't you use grapes? Isn't this true? Yes. You guys don't know, right? Yes. Yeah. And and so you don't you don't make wine with with wheat, and and you don't make bread with grapes, and maybe some of you say, but yeah, but you you know make make beer with hops, and you know I I don't know maybe maybe you do if you have a microbrewery and you do that that's fine, and um, send me an email to educate me I don't know about that, but maybe you know maybe he's had too much wine maybe that's the issue right and he's got it all mixed up and it's all kind of turned around. There's a point. There's a point to the details here. You see, getting is not. Thrashing the wheat on the threshing floor. Threshing floor would be a flat, large area that's open 
in a field, very subjective to the wind to blow, because what they would do, they'd take the wheat, when they bring it into harvest, they'd put it on the thrashing floor, and they would take a big fork, and they would toss it up in the air, and then the wind would blow, and the wind would separate the kernel of wheat from that of the chaff. The chaff was actually the part that they wanted to throw away. It was the useless part, and that was the husk. And then the wheat would fall back down. The wheat would be gathered. It would be ground, and then it would be made into bread. But I thought about this, that he's down in the pit, which a wine press is a pit, which you would place the grapes in. He's down in the pit, of the wine press, struggling to toss wheat high enough for the wind to catch the chaff and to blow it away. Because he knows if the Midianites see him with wheat, they'll come in and they'll take it and they'll go make their own bread. And he's doing this out of fear. So I thought about the imagery here. So give me a moment to kind of work this out with you. I see Gideon in the bottom of that wine press, that pit, And he's throwing that wheat up in the air, trying to separate the chaff from the wheat. And it doesn't get very far. In fact, most of it's falling back down on him. I got this picture of him. He's got, he has got um, wheat stuck in his hair. It's all in his beard. It's all over him, you know. And, And what little of the chaff that might come loose, it falls back down inside the wheat or the kernels themselves. And yet there's not much wind for it to carry it away. But he's trying intensely with all of his might to make this work because he's doing this out of fear. He's afraid of the Midianites. The Bible has a lot to say about wheat and chaff. It says in Psalm verse one, in chapter 1 and verse 4, The wicked are not so but like chaff. The wind drives away. Matthew 3 and 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his thrashing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Chaff in scripture is always a symbolic piece of teaching regarding that of sin. It's the undesirable sin of our lives. It's the brokenness of our lives. It's the failure of our lives. And what I see at this moment is Gideon trying relentlessly to get rid of that chaff as you and I, out of fear sometimes, try relentlessly to clean ourselves up for God to use us. God, I'll stop doing this. God, I'll do better. God, I'll I'll love that person even if it kills me, God. I'll I'll love them, you know. I, I will do that, Lord. And with all of our effort, we pitch the wheat high into the air of our lives, attempting to separate the chaff, to clean ourselves up. And the more we do, the more of it falls back into our faces. But look where God meets Gideon, because I think this is so important for us this morning. God meets Gideon in the middle of his fear, not when Gideon conquers his fear. But God meets him in the middle of the lowest point of his life that he's thrashing wheat 
in a wine press. Because what we realize is this, and hear this well this morning, that we don't and we can't get ourselves into shape and then God comes for us. That's not it. No, it, that's much like threshing wheat in, in a wine press. There's little process or progress for us. No, he comes for us in that moment. He comes for you and I in the lowest moment of our life, in the moment where we're struggling to fix ourselves, in the moment when we want to do better, but we just can't, in the moment when we keep throwing up wheat and, and it doesn't separate and the chaff keeps coming back in our very face and we look in the mirror and we still see the same person. We still see the same person who struggles with lust and fear and all of those kinds of things that we might struggle with in life. We struggle with unforgiveness. We struggle with, with habits and, and all of those kinds of things and we can't fix ourselves. and we've tried so hard to do it and then what does God do? God shows up in the middle of our wine press. And he says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I think, wait a minute. God needs glasses? I mean, who, who is he looking at here, right? Yeah, this is the guy that's hiding away from the Midianites in the middle of a wine press, trying to make some, some wheat for some bread, perhaps. And God sees us. And God sees within us what we can't see within ourselves. He does. And, and that's not some new age Christian voodoo kind of stuff, you know, where, where you're trying to, to discover the person that's somehow hid inside of you. I think they actually call that schizophrenia. But no, it's, it's, it's not at all. No, it's God seeing what is going to become of you as he works sovereignly in your life and as you submit to him and you submit your life to him. It's his desire for you to become. It's his desire to complete what he started within your life. Because you see, and when I read this, I realized that Gideon is not called because he's brave. That's not it at all. Gideon is not called because he's brave. He is made brave as a result of his call from God. So I've been doing this thing, you know, this pastor thing for eh, a little over 40 years, I guess. It's been a while. You say, Mark, do you ever get tired of it? Eh, ask me on a Monday morning. I might tell you that, but right? But, but yet, no, I, I love what I do, but I've learned some things about humanity and people. The first thing I've learned about people is that people are just going to be a mess. I mean, I know that's not necessarily the most theological thing you could ever hear this morning, but what I realize is that people are just gonna be a mess. I mean, this is true. The second thing I've learned is this, that the thing that makes an unbeliever different from a believer is that a believer has help with their mess. That's simple, isn't it? True. I think it's true that they're somewhat, you know, renovated. They have help with their mess. They do. So for a moment, and I, and I know you greet each other earlier, but could you turn to someone around you and say to them, just look them in the eye in great love and say, dear Lord, you need some help with your mess. Could you say that to them for a moment, right? Some of you have taken that to another step. <laughs> you have followed up with your mess is right. And you give them a list, right? Yes. And then I'm going to say your mess is, and then we're going to have to get you up here and pray for you to get you home safe. Right? Yes. Wow. Do you see how that levels the room? It kind of levels the room out for us. It does. 
Because maybe if you don't know the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you, you thought, man, they got, they got everything together. Man, here I am. I'm just, a, I'm just a hot mess sitting here before God. You know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm down here shoveling wheat as, as, as fast as I can shovel it. And every time I throw it up in the air, it comes right back in my face. And I know God is not going to use me in the condition that I'm in. So I got to get myself straightened out. And then God is going to somehow use me. No, it's not the way the Bible reads. Because the third thing I understand about us as humanity is that everyone has something to hide. We've all have our thrashing of wheat in the winepress moments. We do. And I think some of you this morning as I wind this up or down or however it is, right? You say, don't wind it up, Mark. It means we go further. No, wait, just hang on. Don't, don't. That, that, that you're just frustrated because you're throwing the weed up in the air and it's blowing back in your face and, and you're thinking, God is not gonna accept me. God is not going to embrace me and God definitely cannot use me. And then all of a sudden, God steps right in the middle of the wine press and he looks at you and says, mighty person of valor. And you're shocked. You're taken back by that. Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So here's the thing, real quickly. Ask God the hard questions. It's okay. Ask God, when you are in these moments of your life, when you are in the, the wine press, hiding, trying to, to just make things better, and, and you say, God, where are you? And why aren't you helping me? And why am I here to begin with? And Lord, why am I, you know, why am I living in a cave in the rocks? And, and ask God the hard questions. Because when you look at this, what we realize is, this conversation is before God reveals his sovereign call to Gideon. So Gideon is having a very candid and open conversation with God. But what I think is interesting as well, that Gideon doesn't know it's God. He doesn't know it's God until verse 22. He thinks, according to theologians, that it's perhaps a man, at best an angel that he's talking to. He has no idea that this is a theophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. That's who it is. It's not the incarnation, but it's Jesus in a bodily form that he's talking with. And he's pouring out his heart. If he, would, if he had known it was God, if he had known it was Jesus, would he have been so transparent? question is, or the answer is he should have. Because it's not the time to try and protect God from your unbelief. In this moment of your life. It's not the time to protect God from your unbelief. It's okay for you to tell God how you feel. It's okay for you to ask God the tough questions. It's even okay for you to be angry at these moments. Why? Because I've learned this from personal experience. The alternative to honesty with God is bitterness. 
that the more I try to protect God from the way I feel in my unbelief, the more bitterness and contempt grows in my own heart toward God. You see, our encounters with God are not always tears flowing and hands raised, but are equally Gideon moments. Verse 14, and then we pray. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Last verse. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. That may be the most powerful words of all the book of Judges, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Gideon, this is you and I, together. Gideon, trust me, and I'll do the heavy lifting here. I think we look to God as Israel did, and they say to God, God, where are your wondrous works? God, where are the things that you've done of old? God, why have you done those in my life? Why have I not experienced those, God? Why am I living in a cave in the hills? Where are your wondrous works, God? And what we forget, what we forget is that we, you and I, we are the wondrous works of God in this world. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the very image of God. Even in the winepress thrashing wheat, that God steps into your life and he says to you, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. So we, do we need anything else? I think that's the question, right? That you, only you can answer. Do I need anything else but God saying to me, but I will be with you. So for a moment, can I pray with you? If you would take a posture of prayer, those of you that are watching us online as well, whether it's bowing your heads or closing your eyes, just sitting there and allowing God to speak to your heart. But he would open your heart to his words today. So Father, here we are as your children, sitting in your presence, whom you know and nothing is unknown to you about us. Yet God, how many times in our relationship with you do we hide from you? How many times do we hide how we're feeling and how we are frustrated and how we are hurting and how we are angry? So we hide. And we get into our own wine press and get our own 
pitchfork and begin to throw the weed of our life in the air saying, but I'll fix this. I can get the chaff away from the kernel and I can fix this. And God, we walk away with a a face full of wheat knowing we can't fix it. But we turn around in the moments of our life like that and there you stand. There you are. Always present. Always with the right things to say to us. And you speak into our hearts, but I am with you. That God, that you don't always just remove us from the situation that we're in and you move us somewhere else, but you say, but I am with you. And God, we have to deal with that statement because we have to ask ourselves this morning as we sit here and pray, is that enough for us? Is that enough for us, God? So Father, by your spirit, that you help us to come to a realization only by your spirit that that is enough. That that is enough. That you are with us. So Father, if we find ourselves living in a cave, you're with us. If we find ourselves in 40 years of rest, you're with us. God, if we find ourselves watching the Midianites come in and take everything that we have worked for, you're with us, God. Find ourselves in the wine pressure with us. Because a deliverer has been sent. And a savior has been sent. And Father, that is your son, Jesus. So we're not alone. But I am with you. Thank you, Father, for being with us today. Thank you, Lord. That we will no longer hide from you. We'll no longer try to protect you from our unbelief. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.